0: podcast this week it's time to ignore your mother and run with scissors because Blade Runner 2049 is here Blade Runner and we have Denis Villeneuve and Sir Ridley Scott here to talk about it all this and more on the only movie podcast that recently saw an origami reindeer Christmas decoration and wondered if we might all be replicants Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and I'm afraid that I'm hosting this week because Chris is just off a flight from New York and is so jet-lagged, he's actually wearing trousers for once. Uh, That means the Winchesters will be keeping their shirts on. And obviously that I tried to write an intro fitting a song about the Winchesters to the opening number of Hamilton, which, for the sake of your ears, I just decided not to do. But that is not the only theatrical link for this week's episode because this week we are sponsored by uh, The Ferryman, which is the new play... On stage at the Gielgud Theatre in London. It's written by Jez Butterworth, who, of course, wrote, among other things, Spectre uh, in the Bond franchise. Uh, it is directed by Sam Mendes, so its filmmaking credentials are super on point. And this is a play that has already played to huge critical acclaim and five-star reviews at the Royal Court before opening in the West End, where it's been playing to sold-out houses but there are still tickets. Um, it's open until the 6th of January 2018. You can get tickets from as little as £12. They do front row day seats at the box office, which if you turn up uh, at 10.30 on the day of, you can you can chance your luck and try and get a ticket. Get thee down to the Gielgud. Anyway, joining me this week is a colleague of such lethal cunning that we only need one extra person on the pod. He is lethal enough... For all of them. That's right. It is the quiet man, a former boxer who retires to a small Irish village where... No, wait. Not quite. It is John Nugent. Hello. Hello. So it's just you and me. Just us, yeah. It's a bit
1: weird. I've I've taken my trousers off in in honour of Chris.
0: I mean, it wasn't a challenge.
1: I mean, I'm happy to put them back (laughs) on if...
0: If, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hang on. Why, why isn't this HR button working on the phone? Why My aren't chance. they coming? <laughs> oh, God. Um, so we should have a question. I believe that you chose this week's question, John.
1: Uh, I don't know what gives you that idea.
0: Well, let's have a look and see if the listeners can figure it out. Um, at Monty H. Withnail on Twitter asks... <laughs> A battle royale between the hardest movie Johns. John Matrix, John McLean, John Wick or John Rambo, who wins? Why Why would you choose Great that, question, John? Great question,
1: Monty Hate Wicknell or whatever your name was. Great question.
0: Right, so what do you think?
1: Uh, it's a good question, isn't it? I, I mean, <laughs> uh, until now I'd never realised that there were so many sort of badass movie Johns, but there actually are quite a few, aren't there? Because it's such a sort of... Common and boring name that <laughs> any parent with with a lacking in imagination would give to their child. Oh my god!
0: Know. I can't believe you just said that about your own mum and dad. <laughs> no, Disgraceful.
1: Uh, I think I think it's got to be out of that four. Right, John Matrix.
0: John Matrix. I, th- I
1: just can't imagine anyone else going up against the Austrian Oak and his giant deer petting skills. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, John McClane is very... He's got a lot of ingenuity. He's resourceful. He's resourceful. He's got a gift of the gab.
0: Sure. He's got a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho.
1: Yeah, he's got all of that. But I don't know if stacked against Arnie, he would quite have... um, So much. So much. John Rambo would just get a bit weepy and tearful because he's dealing with a lot of stuff. Uh, What was the other one, John? John Wick. John Wick.
0: Now, you see, this is an interesting one because I feel like... John Wick quickness going for the headshot mm. against John Matrix like that is an actual that's a match you know that one yeah. that one's a tough one to call
1: that's true John Wick has got a good aim hasn't he he's so got,
0: yeah and he's just he's I think he'd be faster like we've yeah. seen him take down really big men
1: that's true that's true I Still, mean, I don't know. if we, if we extended it to other Johns, like, yeah. you know, other movie Johns.
0: Are, are there other, which, which ones are you thinking of? Nugent doesn't qualify. Okay. You're not in a movie.
1: <laughs> I'm not in a movie. And if I was, I, I, would <laughs> struggle against, you know, the, the PA of any of these Johns, to be honest. Uh, there's Detective John Kimball. There's another Arnie John. You remember John Kimball?
0: Was that kindergarten cop? I'm Detective John Kimball. Right. I'm a
1: cop, you You idiot.
0: I mean, I fancy his chances against six-year-olds, but I'm not sure I fancy his chances against his other self as John John Matrix, really.
1: No, maybe not.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, I have to say, Chris did actually send in his, his take on this because I, I sent him the question. He said, my pick is John Matrix, so he's with you. Yeah. Then Wick, then Rambo, then McLean. He's just a cop. He'd get slaughtered in seconds.
1: Yeah. As I mean, if it was a skyscraper... Uh, and he had lots of places to hide that maybe John McLean might have more of a, yeah, more of a chance. What if it
0: was like a raid-style skyscraper? Because in that case, I mean, you can see any of them fighting their way up it or down it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I mean Wick would have a good shot, wouldn't he?
0: Yeah, literally. Yeah,
1: literally. Double tap in the head. Yeah. How about <laughs> how about John Doe from Seven? as in Kevin Spacey's character oh that's
0: mean I don't want to let him near any of these people so
1: you think you think that you know John Wick has got the the drop on him and then a delivery truck comes up and it's like John Wick's puppy's head in a box
0: you monster and
1: and so whatever he does he's already won wow I mean if if we're talking about the psychological warfare then then I'm voting for Kevin Spacey in Seven
0: that is I mean that's I don't know what to think now. Bit um, dark? Bit dark. A little bit dark. I mean, very, very, very dark.
1: Okay, okay. I'll bring it back for you, Helen. This okay. is, you'll like this one. John Carter.
0: John Carter. John Carter of <laughs> Mars. Well, now, are we on Earth or on Mars? Because he's much stronger well, on if,
1: Mars. But presumably, they'd all be much stronger on Mars.
0: That is true, which <laughs> so, is terribly unhelpful. So it would
1: level the playing field a little bit.
0: <laughs> or unlevel it again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, he'd be in with a shot against. John McClane I feel like there are similar signs yes. but uh, it would depend on the weapons at that point wouldn't it you know I think John Carter probably better with a sword that's true with a rifle maybe yeah significantly less good with a handgun
1: <laughs> yes or you know if we're talking about John Matrix he likes to throw phone boxes about you know <laughs> it's quite an impressive weapon um, okay this is a good one John Anderton as in Tom ah. Cruise from Minority Reports so he would see all of the deaths ahead of time and anticipate them and then stop them? Or? Well, if
0: he had Samantha Morton with him, sure. Yes, yeah. But again, we're looking into weapons now. Like, does he have a sick stick with him? You know?
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I, I, I'll be honest, Monty H. Withnell. I feel like you need to be more precise in your questioning. Like, it, are we following sort of you know traditional dueling rules, where right. you know the challengee gets to get gets to set the weaponry uh, mm. of choice? I mean, because if it's just a fist fight, I mean, John. Matrix. Well, let's or assume, probably let's probably we're does just take it.
1: all locking them in a warehouse, right? Like it's reservoir dogs. Okay. There's no weaponry, or maybe they're allowed like one handgun each or something, and it's all in a circle in the middle.
0: Wow. Okay. Let's
1: assume it's a level playing field as far as weaponry goes. I,
0: I do feel it comes down to Matrix and Wick in that case. Yeah. And then the winner is...
1: It's Matrix.
0: I mean, I'm going to say Wick just because, you know, in this house we love and respect Keanu Reeves, so...
1: I, 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 look, nothing against Keanu, but <laughs> Arnie would crush him.
0: <laughs> nothing against Keanu, but he would be a small pancake on the floor, <laughs> says John. Well, yes. There you go, you heard it here first. If you want your question read out on the Empire podcast and treated with exactly that level of of intellectual... Rigour. Rigour, that is the only word, um, then please do send them in. We are on Twitter at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. We are on Facebook where we're also Empire Magazine and um, people don't message us there, so, you know, it'd be a novelty if you did. And... um, (laughs) We are also, of course, you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. So uh, shall we have a guest? And we've got a lot of news to get through, but I feel like we should, you know, mix it up a bit, get another voice in here. Let's start with film's favourite French-Canadian. I'm sorry, Celine Dion. (laughs) It's true. She's fashion's favourite French uh, Canadian at the moment. Uh, But film's favourite French Canadian is Denis Villeneuve, the director of Arrival, Sicario, Prisoners, Encendie, and now this week's long-awaited, much-talked-about, incredibly anticipated Blade Runner 2049. He came into London recently and he was talking to John. Me, yes. Cool. Enjoy.
1: Uh, we're delighted to welcome to the Empire Podcast Denis Villeneuve. How are you, sir? I'm great. How about you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. So it, it's been a couple of years since you signed on to Blade Runner 2049, and it's been well about 35 years since we last saw we were last in that yeah. world. Uh, how does it feel now? You're at the finish line. You're 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 nearly done. It's a big relief because yeah.
2: the, the the movie is finished right now. Mm. Uh, um, as we speak, it's like a month ago maybe, and and um, uh, I'm relieved because uh, when I looked at the final object is uh, very close to my initial dreams. okay when I, uh, I started to, to design the movie with Roger Deakins in Montreal uh, two years ago uh, we had some uh, 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 wishes and they are on the screen right now and uh, that is uh, so I feel I have no idea the world will react to the movie, if uh, it would be welcome or not, that I have no control over that, but I know that the movie has a soul, I know it has its own pers- personality and I think, and I, I believe that it, it has a, it it, it's, it pays respect to the first movie uh, in regards uh, about the style and, and uh, it's a kind of a uh, love letter to the first movie, I would yeah. say, yeah
1: that's really interesting that you say uh, your vision sort of has has arrived on screen because so much of making a, f- a film is compromised, right? It's this about having a vision and then having to reality is very abrasive. Yeah, <laughs> and,
2: and it's like I'm coming from an indie uh, world filmmaking right. where uh, you could like, sometimes you can write a scene. Uh, four years ago, about a, a, a sunny day, and you arrive in the morning; it's pouring rain, and yeah. you have to adjust. I'm used to adjust myself, you know. Yeah. And for uh, uh, this time, uh, we had control over the elements. We uh, we uh, we designed uh, the the shoot, so we will control everything. So it was like, uh, of course, there's like things that uh, I have no control of, over. But I'm talking. Uh, uh, no, I mean uh, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> Control <laughs> over everything. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, and uh, and uh, so uh, um, the thing oh in that regard the thing that was difficult was communication. Right. Because I'm used to work with, directly with artists. You know, to sit a, um, uh, beside the cinematographer to to have a, a, a direct contact with the production designer. Mm-hmm. But then I was working with hundreds of artists right. all around the world that right. were working for us. That sometimes uh to make sure that they got the tune that they got the the, the music right the i 'm talking the i 'm talk- talking about the design or mm-hmm. that was a journey, yeah, and until the end, until the very last second I had to be very present to make sure that we were uh, on the right direction, it was like a, every shot was a battle yeah I, 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 I wish uh, for the next movie, I will find a way. To increase the communication process, so it will be easier for everybody. Yeah,
1: this this is the first sequel you have ever directed. Um, do you did, is it stepping into someone's world like Ridley Scott's world? Is that do you, did you find that restrictive, or was that like a fun challenge? Was that like an interesting challenge?
2: It was a frightening challenge. Yeah, and it was a. Uh, I didn't want to feel like a vandal in a church. You know, <laughs> right. it's, like, it's like the first movie is such a. A masterpiece. Honestly, it's a, it's a, it's not a word I use very often. Masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the first Blade Runner is a uh, is a landmark in film history, I, and everybody knows that. So it's like it's a, something that uh, how do you evolve? So it, that's why I'm saying that it, there was a long process uh, 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 of trying to uh, find a way to inv- invade, to to end in a way to uh, for the best and the worst to destroy the the the, the first yeah. movie to make it. Uh, Comes to life again. You have to. It's like when you take a book or you take a play uh, to adapt to the cinema. You have to to transform it uh, in a very radical way. And I did the same in some ways. Uh, uh, I didn't cut and paste. I didn't redo Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. I did a total different movie. Yeah, with the same uh, that pays respect and add the same kind of uh, some some qualities to it, but it's a total different uh, approach.
1: Do you remember the first time you saw the original
2: Blade Runner? I did I did uh, uh, I remember vividly one of the most uh, striking things uh, is uh, the opening which was one of uh, w- which was is uh, one of the good one in the film history I think mm. uh but uh, um I will say that um the thing that struck me uh, about when I remember my very first contact with the first movie is that uh, at the time uh, uh uh, when I saw it uh, in 1982, it's like um, there was like fanzines that were there, like mm-hmm. uh, um, Film Fantastic or Starlog. You know, that was our yeah, o- yeah. only link yeah. and links at the time with with uh, uh, movies to know what was coming out. And I remember seeing images at the front cover of those two magazines. Um, I was from a small town in uh, Canada so there was, there was no internet at the time it was very uh, <laughs> and, and um, uh, it's, there's a phenomenon that I'm trying to explain it's just when you see images uh, uh, as an audience member you see there's a promise, there's a dream you see those images and you, then you t- to try to imagine what the movie will be and it's always most of the time sadly you're disappointed, mm. you see the movie and it's like uh, it's disappointing and and uh, for Blade Runner it was the opposite. The movie was much better. That uh, it was more impressive. It uh, it has uh, it was raising questions. It was like a moving in a way that I was not expecting. It yeah. was like um, quite unique experience. And uh, I, I will say that sci-fi. There's I'm a sci-fi fan. And saying this honestly, there's not a lot of sci-fi movie that I love. I love most most of the time I'm disappointed by them. Mm. They are childish or, 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 or uh, not very profound. or uh, But Blade Runner was like uh, something different.
1: Yeah. So you're hoping that some young people seeing uh, the Empire cover with Blade Runner 2049 will hope that it's better than the actual cover itself. <laughs> Boy,
2: I put myself in a, different, a difficult <laughs> position. This time it's difficult because the expectations are um, no matter... I knew from the start and I accepted the fate that no matter how good the movie will be, it will be always con- compared to, to a, a very powerful uh, piece of art. Yeah. and that uh, that will be the fate. And that, so when you accept that your chances of success are incredibly narrow and that uh, the chances of, of failure are huge. <laughs> and and that uh, yeah, but that you still have the drive and the passion and the, the joy to, to uh, its, it's you kind of find a, a very powerful freedom. it mm-hmm. becomes like a pure artistic act without uh expecting any uh, uh reward you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. we just did that by pure cine- by pure love for cinema you know uh, it's a conversation i had very early on with ryan Gosling, and we both felt all right it's like a, a suicidal mission in the dark <laughs> We jump with uh, with no parachute, wow. and, and we hope that there will be something yeah. we can land on that will not kill us. And and, and so it's it's uh, artistically, I mean, and and it and 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 and. Um, and uh we did it uh, and uh, we did it with that joy you know yeah
1: yeah. that's a great attitude yeah it was the only way to do it yeah, yeah, yeah Ridley Scott obviously wanted to direct this film originally yes um, what, was, what was your sort of working relationship because I understand he was only on set for a, a day or so
2: yeah uh, the thing is that um uh, first of all i needed this blessing that was one of the mm-hmm. conditions i needed to to sit in front of the man and, and uh, ask him basically i said to Ridley, uh, uh, if you if i feel if you tell me that uh, you're not okay with me taking the wheel i'm stepping out of your office saying thank you and i will not do it right. i can do do this movie only if if you if you tell me that it's okay And he was a gentleman, very generous, uh, telling me, giving me insights on um, the genesis of the first movie from his point of view, uh, his sources of inspirations. And at the end of all this, he said, "This movie is yours. It's. uh, I'm not. I'll be there if you need me. If you need uh, any advice, I'll be there. Otherwise." you're alone you're free it's a uh, it's a uh, and uh so i was 100 percent uh free doing this movie wow he came on set one day to uh for uh um, uh just to visit to see okay and i, I would remember <laughs> he was behind me at one point he came on set and ridley never goes on set of other directors i had been told but he he came just to by curiosity and at one point i look at him and i say ridley who are your favorite directors and he said to me, you know, I, I, uh, I was a big fan of uh, Ingmar Bergman yeah. and of Kubrick, too. Those were my masters. I said, so how would you feel if you were trying to direct something with Bergman behind your <laughs> shoulder? <I?"> he <laughs> started to laugh and he left. <laughs> because for me, it was unbearable. Yeah, I mean, it that, was like, it's, yeah. like, it's like I have so <laughs> much respect for the man And I honestly, it's like, it's, uh, (laughs) I I felt uh, noise. I, uh, yeah. And honestly, doing this movie just increased my respect for him. Yeah. Because I, as much as I dreamed making sci-fi for a long time, since decades, uh, I was not, um, I didn't guess, I didn't imagine how difficult it is to design a world. Hmm. And uh, so my respect for Artists like Ridley Scott just increased more. Yeah, he's a quite a, a master. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it true that you originally wanted David Bowie to appear? In, yes. In but, but it's it's listen. When we started
2: the casting, it uh, um uh it was a, a first idea. You know, when you you read the screenplay and you you have some. There's the initial dreams mm. when you see the movie, mm. and then when you see actors, and a lot of those actors that were at the birth of the the dream are in the movie right now. But uh, there were the first uh, idea was the, for the De- Neander Wallace, that one of the main character was uh, the idea was to go to David Bowie wide, because the, the 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 character needed to be. Bigger than life, to have that kind of sacred quality, to have that kind of uh, death, and 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 uh, also I felt it was like uh, for me, I always felt that David Bowie was one of the may uh, one of the inspiration for the original Blade Runner. You know, he was mm-hmm. Blade Runner before Blade Runner was a yeah. so ahead of his time, and and I felt that it was a kind of made total sense to 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 invite him to 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 be part of this adventure and and. Uh, And uh, everybody was very excited by the idea, and we were, uh, uh, and we had heard that it will be available, and 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 then we heard the terrible news that we lost that great artist, and uh, Mm. and it took me forever to uh, to um, you know it's it's very strange when. as a director you dream so strongly about something so when i i, I learned that uh unfortunately uh, he left us i i um there was the mourning of the man and the artist of course but mm. i had to mourn a long time for the dream of uh who will i will see that could replace or to to or not replace but to sp- try to uh and then the idea of Jared Leto came, but it's an idea that came very far away in time. I mean, uh, it, I had to mourn for a long time. Mm. So it's a strange process. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and, and then Jared for, uh, uh, and honestly, uh, I, I'm very proud of what Jared did, yeah.
1: I mean, he's a very much a larger-than-life character in many ways, and and you know, a rock star as well. So he, he he fills some of those roles. I mean, what was your experience like with Jared? Because you you hear stories that he stays in character and he takes it very seriously. I mean, what was I, it
2: like? I, I rarely see so much. Com- it was I I rarely saw that amount of commitment yeah. in an actor. So professional, so prepared, every. Uh, jared prepare on all levels from the tone of his voice to uh to his gestuality to where he studied because his character is blind he studied blind people mm. he had a, a friend who is uh, uh, blind and, and he studied his gestures postures intonations uh micro detail is a maniac i mean uh, very <laughs> maniac about that and and uh he I, and i like you i heard all those stories so i was curious i said okay what mm. what could he do <laughs> a bit afraid at the same time and uh, uh we uh he, i wanted him to have like i contact lenses and we did lenses that were like based on on, on the, uh, very close to what a blind person look like and but jared insisted that he will himself also be blind by the lenses so it means that he will he will be not he will see nothing so he insisted um jared never saw my film crew he never saw wow he spent the hunter the 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 camera test the 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 rear souls the the all the shoot blinded (laughs) He came blind. That's okay. I'm not disappointed. (laughs) I was like, so it was so amazing to see him and frightening at the same time because he was putting himself in this strange, dangerous position sometimes, not seeing, you know. So he he, was coming on set, uh, leaded by his uh, assistant. And and it what created a tension on set that I deeply loved because it was yeah. like a sacred moment when he was walking on set. All the crew became very was always becoming very quiet. Yeah, and we were seeing and and it created it creates such such a beautiful tension. Yeah, and it was very inspiring. And I saw the level of commitment and uh, for the, all the actors all around him. It was like uh, we felt the danger and and, <laughs> and uh, we it. Uh, is uh, I, I deeply love working with him. Honestly, I hope yeah. it will happen again because it was quite a, a journey and very uh, very inspiring. Yeah,
1: uh, I think I'm almost out of time. I just wanted to ask very quickly: um, there is a sequel to Sicario in the works, and you are not directing it. Do you feel a little bit like? Uh, Ridley Scott passing his baby (laughs) on to someone else the thing is that it was strange because as I I agreed to do Blade Runner
2: I I learned that uh, they had asked me to read the screenplay of Soldado Mm -hmm. which is a very beautiful screenplay written by Taylor Sheridan the the screenwriter of uh, the original uh, Sicario Mm -hmm. and uh, as much as I loved it I I had to decline and uh, they asked me if I would like to be part of it it, uh, in any way and I said you know no 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 I don't want to meet the the uh, the new boyfriend of my ex-girlfriend. You know, I, don't, I, I wish her uh, good luck. I yeah. want her to have fun, but it's like it's just I I I felt um, uh, that uh, Stefano Salima, the, the director, mm-hmm. ne- needed to have f- space and freedom. So I wished him good luck, and uh, and I knew the movie was was in strong hands. But it's very strange for me to know that the characters evolve in somebody else. Uh, mind i can't wait to see the movie yeah. i have seen nothing they wanted to show me cuts they wanted to show me dailies i said no i don't want uh, if he needs me I, i'll be there but otherwise i don't want to see uh, i want to to sit in the theater and enjoy the experience of discovering this movie that i can't wait to see it's it's like uh it's gonna be very exciting i must say
1: yeah for me well we look forward to that and we look forward to play around in 2049 uh then even thank you so much for thank you thank, thank you. you.
0: So he was the one with the French accent, right?
1: <laughs> That's right if you weren't sure which one of us was which
0: thank you for clarifying yes yes um so we should talk about some news. We are going to review obviously Blade Runner later in the show yeah don't don't worry we haven't forgotten but uh, but there's a lot of news to get through this week first so uh, where do you want to start?
1: Uh, how about we start with um the goldfinch?
0: Yeah, That's let's a- do
1: that that, that broke uh, sometime yesterday, I believe as we record. Um, So The Goldfinch um, is a book by Donna Tart, a very good book by Donna Tartt. Hugely good,
0: yeah, amazing amazing um, book.
1: Published in 2014, and that is now in the process of being adapted, and it seems that Ansel Elgort has the lead role. So um, El of
0: uh, the Fault in Our Stars fame, for example,
1: or baby, the Baby Driver,
0: Baby Driver, most recently, of course, most
1: recently, yeah.
0: Um, and the the book is like the book is enormous. Like if you if you run out of doorstops and you have the goldfinch, like you're sorted. You know, it will it will cover that eventuality, <laughs> even with a heavy door. Uh, but it's also like it's a really good book. It's the story of. Um, A a boy who becomes a young man who loses his mother in an attack, isn't it? Or a a disaster at a museum. It's like a
1: terrorist attack at at an art museum. Like a
0: bomb goes off, basically. And in the aftermath of this bomb, he picks up a small painting of the goldfinch Mm -hmm. from this museum. And essentially makes off with it, semi, almost accidentally, like it's just something he does out of shock, and he keeps it with him for years and years. And we see him dealing with the fallout in his life um, from from the loss of his mother and from you know having to make his way kind of alone in the world in some ways. Uh, it's it's I would have thought a difficult book to adapt.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I think a lot of Goldfinch fans will be a little bit nervous about this. Um, because it is it is so huge and expansive and takes in a lot of characters and a lot of, um, you know, it, it spans quite a lot of years. You know, it starts out as young teenagehood and it yeah. ends up sort of as an early man. But we, we've got Brooklyn director John Crowley on board to, to um, direct it, so and Brooklyn was very good.
0: Brooklyn was great.
1: So, you know, that's a positive thing, and Ansel Gore has sort of proved that he's, you know, he can carry a film, as he did with Baby Driver and The Fault in Our Stars, so... Yeah, I, I think so. He's playing Theo, by the way. He's playing the lead character. Sorry, yeah,
0: we should maybe yes. actually name him. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: he's 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 um, he's carrying this film. So yeah, we we shall see, as yeah. we of, often say.
0: We shall, but um, but you know, after Baby Driver, you're right. We've got to be pretty optimistic for that one. Right. So that's good stuff. Um, speaking of films that we increasingly have to be optimistic about, even mm. though we may not have intended to be in the first place, Venom has added another. Interesting piece of casting. Jenny Slate is now lined up to play a scientist in this film. Um, Jenny Slate, of course, uh, most recently appeared in Gifted opposite Chris Evans. She was, of course, the, I think, writer and star of Obvious Child a few years ago. She's brilliant. Um, and she's also signed up to join the cast of Venom, which now includes Tom Hardy, Michelle Williams and Riz Ahmed. Either they're writing checks made of gold... <laughs> to these people or it's a genuinely good script right?
1: I, d- I don't understand what's going on here is this <laughs> is it really Venom or is it Venom just like is it like a front is it is like it- a gangster front <laughs> and it's actually like a Sundance indie film
0: is about- it a film about the f- the, f- the song Venom is it a film about the perfume
1: Venom you know. Venom is like a sort of uh, uh, Williamsburg coffee bar that they <laughs> they all congregate in and talk about their lives. I don't. I mean, yeah, you right. Uh, I can't quite make head nor tail of it, but it is a fantastic cast. So maybe it's going to be a good.
0: Maybe film? it's going to be awesome. We've got a script by Scott Rosenberg and Jeff Pinkner, Ruben Fleischer directing. They've got a 5th of October 2018 release date all lined up.
1: Wow, so that's less than a year.
0: Less than a year. The clock is ticking, or- but there's, there's got to be something there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We keep sounding surprised, but, you know, it's it's a thing that's happening.
1: It is a thing that's happening. Um, another thing that's happening is yeah. many Avatar sequels, as we all so know. So many. Um, and a new addition to Avatar 2 through, I don't know, Infinity, <laughs> um, is Kate Winslet's. Kate Ooh. Winslet is um, re-teaming with her Titanic director James Cameron. Um,
0: I guess time heals all wounds. I
1: guess so. Yeah, that's this is this is what happens to her. If she clambered off the, <laughs> the the bit of wood in the sea.
0: The bit of wood that was big enough for two people. Yeah. That bit of wood. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Uh, so she is playing uh, someone called Ronal, R O N A L. Um, mm. We don't know anything about this character, but. Um, Uh, James Cameron said in a statement that he's been looking to work with um, Kate Winslet again for the last 20 years and she can't wait to see her bring the character Ronal to life
0: Ronal? Do we think it's a baddie? Do you cast Kate Winslet as as your baddie in this Mm. film?
1: I don't know I mean we've got literally zero information to go off
0: Yeah we do, I know I'm just Um, going from the name Ronal Does it sound like a goodie or a baddie?
1: Ronal, it sounds Irish if I'm honest
0: are you mixing up Ronan yes. with another name? Ronal,
1: Ronan, <laughs> and Donal.
0: It's, oh my God! You know,
1: it's, um, You've cracked it. <laughs> it's maybe an Irish version of the the navies. <laughs> Wait, and
0: navies? Oh my god. Navies
1: were Irish, weren't they? The Irish navies. Perfect.
0: I, I think it's pronounced navi, but you know, sure. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> Shall you not go to the the tree of life?
0: Okay, just just to tell you, you're cre- you're committing a hate crime right now. So. Like, you know, again, I'm pressing the HR button on the phone. But that
1: was pretty accurate, right?
0: Anyway, uh, let's go to the next story. Okay, um,
1: swiftly, <laughs> swiftly.
0: Yeah, Jared Leto, who's, of course, back on our cinema screens this week in Blade Runner, um, has signed on to play Hugh Hefner, uh, who died last week at the age of 91. Mm. Uh, he is uh, now the subject of a biopic, which will be directed by Brett Ratner. Um, So that's a, certainly a... Way to convince us of Hugh Hefner's feminist legacy.
1: I believe the working title is Toxic Masculinity, the Movie.
0: <laughs> Another one? It's like 400 in that series. My God. I mean, okay, like, let's again try to find the good in this. There must be good in this. Uh, Jared Leto is a very gifted actor. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically wears silk pyjamas a lot of the time anyway. <laughs> Genuinely, <laughs> if you true. if you look through his fashion sense, it is it is out there. Yeah. He's very comfortable in, in colourful patterned silks, mm-hmm. uh, which, which certainly plays into the character. And he often is, I'm sure in life, surrounded by beautiful women. So, you know,
1: certainly. he's yeah. done
0: that method research.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think they've been talking about this for a little while, but um, obviously this comes hot on the hills of the news of Hugh Hefner's death. And since his death, there's been a lot of debate about... uh, I've seen people say he was one of the great civil rights leaders of our time, and I've seen people say he was, you know... uh, Otherwise. Otherwise, let's say, you know, setting the course of feminism back... uh, Choose how many decades, I guess. Um, So, I don't know... it. it's certainly an interesting and colourful life and it could prove to be an interesting and colourful film. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't want to sound too... Every day is Christmas Eve.
0: Hey. Yeah. Nicole Kidman is on a bit of a winning streak at the moment, I have to say. she's She hasn't really put foot wrong in quite some time. I saw her recently playing a punk. I've seen her in a, a weird film opposite Colin Farrell in which they're both great um, I bet you can figure out which one. Um, and uh, and obviously Big Little Lies was absolutely tremendous. She has now signed up for Karen Kusama's Next planned movie, which is a crime film called Destroyer. Uh, and that will see her play a detective at the LAPD, Erin Bell, who was placed undercover in a sort of a cult in the California desert. Mm. Um so the, the, this this happened earlier in her career. Years later, the the leader of the gang reemerges, and she has to try and track him down, uh, confronting the demons of her own past. Mm. Demons, good, sign me up. I'm sure the Winchesters will be along any minute, eh? Not
1: that sort of demon, Helen. No, no, uh, no. Well,
0: that's less exciting.
1: No, no shirts off for this film.
0: There no. are no shirts off. We come on, we're having a shirt off free day.
1: Okay, sorry, you're right. It's a very serious. <laughs> serious drama about shirted men
0: there you go okay Uh, a couple of very quick ones to finish off with bad news for all fans of bald men Um, Fast and Furious number nine Fast 9 Furious, I mean, they've got to do something with it, I don't know, Uh, has been pushed back. The release now will not be until 2020. No! It's a full year, man! No! We were due in 2019. I need my Hobbs fix. Don't we all? I mean, wait, 2019, even that's a long time to wait. Yeah. Yeah, so... uh, the tenth film had been penciled in for 2021, unless they're shooting them back to back. You'd imagine that one's also going to be moving. Mm. Um, but basically, everyone's expected back, obviously because they're family. You know, <laughs> we don't know anything more about it. We haven't been offered a reason for the shift. Um, it might be because there isn't a director yet, which tends to hold things up just a tad. Sure. But uh,
1: maybe it's uh, there's some sort of candy ass dispute that they need to sort out. You know, <laughs> they need to like sort it out like family do. Like
0: family with with a couple of what was the beer?
1: Oh, uh, Corona. Of uh, coronas,
0: course. a couple of Coronas. They just got to th- settle
1: it over a barbecue. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I hope everyone's all right. I I do worry about those guys.
0: I mean, I think they're okay. They look like they're okay, right?
1: I mean, well, yeah. They're, <laughs> financially, they're I'm sure they're <laughs> fine. Um, you know, but did you not hear there was a bit of a dispute between uh, The Rock and Tyrese Gibson? recently did
0: you hear about recently this? no yeah
1: so there is supposedly a Hobbs and Shaw um spin-off series with um or spin-off film with with The Rock and, and Jason Statham amazing that's due to be happening which you know um analysts are expecting it to be the greatest film of all time um <laughs> and uh t- it seems Tyrese has a bit of beef with The Rock about him it's not really clear why but he's called them out on Instagram a couple of times Um, No, yeah, the
0: site of all the greatest beefs. I
1: know exactly. That's where real men duke it out (laughs) on the instas. So um, it's not really. I'm not sure if Tyrese is is just uh, angry about this spinoff, or I think he's. I think he was a bit concerned that the spinoff might delay the series, which may still be the case. So that could be the reason is that Mm. instead of seeing Fast and Furious Nine, we're going to see. Hobson Shaw, you know, in as their sort of body
0: friendship is magic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That if that's the subtitle, <laughs> I will be so happy. <laughs> it's just three hours of bald men just skipping through fields and, and joy and happiness. <laughs> so I yes, we'll wait to hear on the real reason for this delay but let's hope they're all friends that's all i that's all i care about yes
0: and and also let's hope that you know it is fast and furious like they're not supposed to slow down that much right. you know so. right Exactly. It's not thematic at all. Um, very quickly, before we uh, move on, uh, we should say that Maleficent 2, which is a thing that is also happening, uh, has found a director in Joachim Ron- Ronning. Apologies to literally everyone uh, for that pronunciation. Uh, he's already been handled one big Disney franchise with Pirates of the Caribbean. Salazar's Revenge or whatever it is we're calling it today and uh, and is working solo this time without his Contiki directing partner uh, Espen Sandberg uh, on Maleficent 2 so that's going ahead uh, Angelina Jolie has said she'll return it's all under wraps plot wise um, but original writer uh, Linda Wilverton was back and Jez Butterworth has also taken a crack at the script so you know it appears that it could be in cinemas in twenty nineteen. Maybe it's taken Fast and the Furious release date. Probably not though.
1: Well, you know, I know which one I'd like to see.
0: I know, right? Maleficent two? Sure.
1: Maleficent two.
0: I mean, if it's between bald heads and horned heads, what are you gonna do? Like it's a it's a <laughs> tough choice. Um I mean the first one looked stunning. I think it just had maybe a little bit like maybe like forty percent too much story. And I feel like <sighs> if they got maybe like forty percent less story in this one it might might just work maybe speaking of reasons to be cheerful there's a new empire this week and it is a gorgeous Justice League one I have to say I now get sent the subscribers cover which is really good like don't get me wrong the newsstand cover is lovely but the subscribers cover is a special illustrated justice league image by one of the big dc artists it's gorgeous mm. um i might hang it on my wall and it's uh, it's it's really really fascinating we've got chris's coverage of his visit to the justice league there are some brand new pictures with wonder woman surprisingly front and center it's almost like her film has been a massive success and they've <laughs> realized that everyone loves her and wants to see more of her yeah, huh. funny that so weird uh, so that's uh, that's the big uh, that's a big cover maybe that's the big feature but we have a huge packed house Paddington Two which I saw some super charming footage of uh, from recently is in there as well also by Chris what the heck come on there's freelancers no. here who need work it is uh, <laughs> it's given the headline marmalade boogaloo which is a reason to buy it alone <laughs> but it is uh, a super charming film that will involve Paddington get- getting sent to prison because he's trying to get his aunt a birthday present, which is the most Paddington reason to end up in prison that I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. And I'm totally delighted by it. Uh, we have a tribute to the late, the great Harry Dean Stanton, uh, which is a lovely uh, look back through his life and work and, and what a body of work it was. Um, Dan has been to to talk about Stranger Things 2. That's what they're calling it, not just a second season, but an entirely sequel-y kind of experience. And again, if you're looking for charming pe- uh, pictures of adorable little people dressed up as Ghostbusters, this is the place to get them. Uh, Haley Campbell, I think, um, fulfilled a lifelong dream uh, by profiling Pumping Iron, the 1977 Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding documentary that first launched the Austrian oak mm. and thereby John Matrix on an unsuspecting world. What a deal! And then we have the Great Death of Stalin. Armando Iannucci's new film. Everything you need to know about what I think might be the funniest film of the year. And if it isn't, what a year, man!
1: Mm. It's an incredible
0: film. Andy Circus talks us through his directorial debut, *Breathe*, um, which is a, a lovely, lovely film. It's opened the LFF, the London Film Festival, this week, and it's a, it's just a packed issue. What can I say? What can I say? Grace Jones doing pint of milk here, people. We've got uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer profiled in the news section. We've got Gunpowder, for all you Kit Harington fans. Um, Vince Vaughn, as you've never seen him before, in Brawl in Cell Block 99. Don't worry if you've missed the first 98. <clears throat> okay, it's happy birthday to that joke. And uh, Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour, dressed up as, Win- as Winston Churchill and looking nothing like himself. <laughs> I really can't get my head around that one, I'll be honest. I'm having real trouble with it. Um, Other oh, Rock... There you go, John. The Rock is in it.
1: Oh, thank God. Yes, that yeah. was my piece, actually. Oh there yeah you go. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I I went to Hawaii and hang out with The Rock. I mean, oh,
0: I can see how you would forget that. No yeah. big deal. <laughs>
1: I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, that was, um, you know, the favourite thing that I ever did, perhaps. So that was nice. Please read that.
0: So that is uh, this month's Empire Magazine price £4.70 in all good and or evil news agents. Get after it if you're not already subscribing. I think it's time for another guest, don't you? Yes. Enough of us wittering on. Um, So he is the man who started this whole Blade Runner thing with a sci-fi movie that no one liked and hardly anybody saw in 1980. Times, however, have changed, and we've all realised that it's really quite, quite magnificent. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Sir Ridley Scott who was talking to our dearly departed Phil. He hasn't died. He's literally just left but he's still dear. Anyway, Phil and Ridley, take it away.
3: Ridley Scott, welcome to the Empire Podcast. You talked to us about Alien Covenant. Yes. You're back to talk about Blade Runner 2049 and hopefully a bit about Blade Runner itself. Yes. Will you at some point be back to tell us
4: about Duelist too? Um, it could be, uh, but as I said, I'm not going to tell you what it is. That creates people, you know, ideas in this business are currency. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to be careful how much you speak, how much you talk, because they gong somebody across the world goes, I, I think I'll do that. Yes. So, yeah, it, originality is currency.
3: But the reason I mentioned Julius, obviously, that was your directorial debut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Alien. Um, followed that, followed yeah. by Braid Runner. Yeah. So you are in a way kind of revisiting the earliest part of your career. Yeah. Are you a nostalgic man? Do you, do you someone? Are you someone that looks back at his early work and He's sentimental and yeah. not nostalgic? This this process must must make you feel must take you back to the early eighties to the beginning. Uh,
4: no, I'm very forward thinking. Right. I've ever never never any regrets. People say, did you have any regrets about any film you made? I said never, ever at all and I always look forward I'm, always, I'm a forward looker I never look back
3: okay well let me ask a different spin on that if, if we'd if we had the gift of uh, foresight in 1982 June when, when Blade Runner was released in cinemas and we'd come up to you and said Ridley we're going to be talking to you in a London hotel 35 and a bit years later about a sequel what would
4: you have said? <laughs> um, well I have to tell you I thought I made something special and it doesn't matter how I was beaten up by whoever it was The worst of all was Pauline Cale. I was old enough, I was 43 then, to think, you know, I don't really care. I'm just very pleased with what I made, because I know it's special. So when it started to evolve, somebody at the time, post Blade Runner, immediately said, you know, this is gonna come back and visit you. That was a year after the film was absolutely bashed and beaten up. And it suddenly surfaced with MTV, uh, well, How is it those musicians are always ahead of everyone? Right? <laughs> it's true, yeah. Yeah, all yeah. Uh, the what you think is an oi rock, rock and roller is not is usually pretty bloody smart. And they I started to show its hand there. Then suddenly it came out of a drawer in Santa Monica where somebody had been asked and wanted to supply print for the very few uh, supporters of the Alien front of the, yes. the Alien film. And what they c- came out with was an accident. We had, didn't have titles, had a bit of Jerry Goldsmith music and some new tracks from Van Gellis on it with no titles at all and no voiceover. And the ending that ended up in the elevator, which was always the intention, and I think it was 65 mil. Wow. So they ran that went, there was a gobsmack, and it, that was where it all began again. Wow. Do you, when you look at
3: the, the sort of myth and legends that have built up around Blade Runner in those years... Yeah. Are there things that people still don't know? Uh, 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 Do you follow the kind of the debates online about all kinds of aspects
4: of it? Is there? I'm I'm neither a Twitter nor a what do you call it? I don't do any of that. You're not on Instagram? No, my. my phone, as long as it tell, I don't want to know how hot it is in Calcutta. As long as I make phone calls, that's all I care about. <laughs> Unless you're in Calcutta, I
3: yeah, suppose. Yeah. Um, Denis Villeneuve obviously uh, is directing this one, yes. uh, and you're producing. Yes. Um, he tells a lovely story about you and um, and Harrison Ford. And he, in a restaurant in Budapest where you shot the film. Um, and he, the way he tells it, you had lovely wine and a good conversation. And, and it ended with you and Harrison shouting at each other no, across the restaurant. No. He may be exaggerating. Can you, totally. can you remember? What are your memories of that?
4: Um, it was actually about something, this old adage about, was he a replicant or not? And I said to him, dude, <laughs> if you weren't a replicant, the film you're about to do couldn't exist so when you see the film, you'll see what I mean. It's essential in the f- present film that he is a replicant.
3: Okay. So he's. So you've. Going to tell you what it is. No, 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 I'm going to no. no. Well, we're very consciously not going to get into the plot yeah. details, not least because no, he has to be a replicant. Okay. Work. So, so you're at peace with Harrison about this now?
4: Oh yeah. Okay.
3: Sure,
4: sure. Um, I never was at peace with him. He, he and I were. Um, I came from a different school of filmmaking that he was used to you will remember, by the time I'd done this, I had a very successful office in Los Angeles, a big office in New York. I'd done the prize at Cannes for, for my first film, and I'd done Alien. Mm. I'd done two and a half thousand, and my company's done 5,000 commercial yeah. point. So I'm not a learner. No. So I'm listening to these people telling me what I ought to do, and I, at, 40, at, at 44 you just don't accept that shit. So I just sat there, was smiling, and said, I'm <laughs> going to do it this way. <laughs> and it was like, I was a new guy on the block, but I'm not a kid.
3: No, point. no.
4: So I know exactly how to defend the realm.
3: What was your, what was your, no, I can imagine, what was your spe- specific involvement with Blade Runner 2049? Were, were you on set very much? Did you no, try and steer clear?
4: Once, and my big thing was preparing the script, because the script was going to be done for me, because yeah. Alcon came to me and said, listen, we're going to buy the title before we do it, do you think there's a story here? I said, absolutely. What is it? I said, I'll tell you when you, you really get going. I'm not gonna tell you right now, um, but it's a very clear and present story as to what it is. And from that, the evolution is kind of a, quite a big universe than the context of the Blade Runner realm. Yeah, And it's clear yeah. when you, you get it, but it carries you right through the story. Okay, And so it was so obvious as the nose on my face and it all happens in the first ten minutes of Blade Runner. Okay, if yes, there's the clue, right, right there.
3: Exciting. <laughs> so, so you weren't. So, one day on set. Uh,
4: no, but met quite a f- long time. Script. Hampton, we met with Hampton. I met Bro- Hampton. Hampton thinks he was called Lady. No, he wasn't. He was called First. He's such an old lady. Um, uh, Hampton came in because I had the best time with Hampton when I was doing the original Blade Runner, and. uh I spent four or five months with Hampton every day working and I have to say it was the best time I've had ever working with a writer because there was a light ignition each day and the, the idea grew from a play inside a small apartment mm-hmm. to a universe of where it was because I bring to everything to bear like a production designer because I'm my strongest asset I have a good eye Yeah, so actually a great eye and I can come in and I've already envisioned what it could be outside and I was trying to bring that to bear and Hampton had to tolerate that evolution but he put it on paper with my everyday egging him on, dropping in ideas and notions, what about this, what about that um, the invention of Tyrell and all that. right? and even then we said that you can't possibly call these things robots or replicants or, or uh,
3: androids yeah.
4: and David were peoples who came and helped him out in the latest period, his daughter was studying genetics and said, you know, the good word is replicants. Yeah. Replication went replicants. Yeah so then I brought Hampton back to do this. We sat in the London office, I don't know, probably five, six days, but we already, I think, knew because of the first one, there was this obvious, very obvious story. So we even the beginning of the movie that you'll see was gonna be the beginning of the original Blade Runner. Right. The whole scene at the beginning was going to start off the original play. Right? Okay. Yeah. So we said, why yeah, why don't we start this- there? we weren't able to do that. Great way to begin the movie. Yes. And then during that, I had a race on with, I was I, I was developing several things at once. So, I, I, I was evolving Alien Covenant, which is an extension on the Prometheus. Prometheus did so well. We went again. So it was an evolution of the Alien franchise. And we were way ahead of that, and I had to make a decision. Right. So then we came in with Denis.
3: The Battle of Britain has yes. been something that's been on your IMDb yes. page for a while. Yes. Um, I just wondered, with the success of Dunkirk, yes. whether that becomes a more appealing prospect?
4: it should. Was Dunkirk very successful or me- medium?
3: I think, I think uh, yeah. Okay.
4: But I think I was kind of waiting for that, because if it's very successful, then it makes Battle of Britain viable. Right because you can go again on a different part of the war. But I got a good script, and I'm just kind of waiting to see.
3: Okay. I,
4: he did a good script, yeah.
3: I'm a massive fan of the original, well, the original, the original oh, yeah. battle. Yeah. Now, the original movie, um, Star Studded.
4: Yeah, you have to personalise these stories. It's a bit like doing Getty. You've got to have a great Getty. You've got to have a great Gale. And there was a guy who used to work for Getty, um who's Mark Wahlberg, believe it. Right. Or is a fantastically straight character who is a more than that, but for the purpose of this discussion, the security for John Paul Getty and is excellent. Okay. He's got a fantastic trio plus the sun is great, Charlie.
3: So what would be would your would your Battle of Britain be a more intimate story yeah. than uh... There
4: be a lot of there'd be a lot of in flight stuff which you can do in a funny kind of way, a lot easier and less dangerously today than you could if you're having two fly within six feet of each other. Yeah, it's just downright stupid. Um, and so you can get all that right. But I think it's always on the character, the character, the character. Okay. Story, story, story. Yes.
3: Um, Alien Covenant. Yeah. You've talked about the the, the idea of making um, another couple of movies set in the, the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us any more about sort of give us a sort of status update on where you're at with the sequel to that one?
4: I think the uh, evolution of the alien himself um, is nearly over. Right. But you, what I was trying to do is transcend and move some to, to another story, which would be taken over by AIs and the world of the AI and the world of the, the AI might create as a leader if he finds himself onto a new planet right and from that we had actually quite a big quite a big layout for the next one for Covenant whatever to Covenant 2 whatever you want to do yeah and you know when I did Prometheus I said to them I think you can resurrect this whole notion because the Alien franchise ran for four those two were good the other two were good yeah yeah and I think it, when they did, finally did it, Alien vs Predator I thought that put the cap the lid on the on the on the stew it was finished. And then I went back to them about I think ten years later and said, listen, I think we can do something. So we resurrected that to show how an alien may have come about. We did well enough from that Prometheus to go again. But I was told that the thing that they you know, we did Prometheus for a pretty good price, not not your two hundred million, not not Mark. I don't do that
3: shit.
4: Mm. Buying as I buying a bottle of red for a thousand pounds, you've got to be an idiot. And you get a good one for like fifty pounds or thirty. So I'm
3: Really, we're journalists. <laughs>
4: Fiverr. <Okay>, well, <laughs> you only went one for five. But I'm very kind of frugal, mm-hmm. very practical. Yeah. So I do Alien, uh, Prometheus, I mean, really just very good price. And we make four fifty. So now you go, wow, there's life in the dog. Yes. So now we go again on. Covenant which is again roughly the same price four years later so it's very frugal Mm. and a very ambitious film and we did well again so I think um, I think it's it's really about business but it's me it's commerce and art and uh, filmmaking will be that and should be that unless you're making films for a 100,000 pounds Yes. If you're making film for a million pounds, a lot of money to lose. Yeah. If you're making film for two hundred and sixty, you should be shocked. <laughs> Sorry.
3: Harsh, making, but yeah, if you, if you put, <laughs> yeah. If Absolutely. If you're yeah.
4: The two hundred and sixty. Then you put P and A. Hmm. Hundred three hundred and sixty. F- then you go global, let's say you make eight hundred thousand dollars. Studio doesn't receive it; they only receives four hundred, so you're not out yet. Right. Because the other half goes to the exhibitor.
3: Of course. Yeah, of course.
4: So that's why the studios are limping, because there's too much money spent.
3: Yeah. So the franchise is sort of financially viable and, and, and for you creatively viable. In terms of the narrative, it seemed like at the end of Alien Covenant, there wasn't very... There, it was, It's was hard to know where, where it was going to go next from a kind of a human point of view. Yes. Catherine Waterston seems to be yeah. kind of in deadly jeopardy, shall we say. Yes. Um, David's behaviours oh, that we've seen...
4: End on a cliffhanger. As opposed to completion.
3: But it felt like a cliffhanger where the person had fallen off the cliff slightly, or was at least falling.
4: It, yeah. It, but that it gives me an option to kind of fundamentally work it whichever way I want. When, I, yeah. when you get come in.
3: Do you have your first scene in your head? No. Okay.
4: No, no, no. I'm doing something about something else next.
3: Yes. Go on, tell us. No, I can't. Really? No. I can't. When will we find out?
4: Oh, in about two weeks.
3: Really? Yeah. Okay.
4: And what I'm already writing, I already prep. When I, when I'm, I discovered years ago, being in post, I'm sitting twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. So in post, I'm already prepping.
3: Yeah. Amazing. I just. <laughs> a prodigiously sort of productive yeah, filmmaker. I like. Yeah, of course. Um, I've got to wrap up, but just just lastly, I mean, we've been talking about Blade Runner: the original and and, and the, the sequel now, all this time later. The inter- intervening period, the legacy of that film is so profound on so many levels. I just wonder, from a filmmaking point of view, uh, you must see a lot of films that you think that you see Blade Runner in. You know, there, there's The Matrix, Strange yeah, Days, video, Ghost in the, the window, Yeah, Russia's Yeah. Russia,
4: Russia, Russia. Oh no, that was whatever. And uh, a lot of bands would come to me ask me to do their digital work. Okay. Bob Dylan. Had a wow. Long close meeting with Bob for like four hours. Where he'd had his accident. Well, he had a, a motorcycle, wasn't he? He nearly, I think, killed himself. This is 20 years ago. And I was called in to go meet Bob. And I was four-hour meeting because he loved Blade Runner. He had his brand-new album coming out. He wanted me to, to do it. But he wanted me to do the whole bloody album. I said, Pop.
3: I'll be out of work for a year. Can you afford it? How much is it? Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Amazing, Bob Dylan. Uh, Blade Runner super fan. Um, thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast again, Ridley.
0: All right. So let's get going with reviews. Where should we start, John?
1: Uh, there's, you know, there's this tiny little film that you know Nobon's really been talking about called Blade Runner
0: 2049. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, we, we should probably give that a quick mention, really, sure. shouldn't we? Yeah, it is... Uh, I mean, to say it's long-awaited is, is true, but at the same time, I think long-anticipated and, and long-slightly feared that it might not live up to the, the storied reputation these days of the original. Um, luckily, um, and I'll give you a spoiler here, it's a five-star review, it, uh, it very much does. So... Um, Ryan Gosling um, is Officer K. he is a Blade Runner like Harrison Ford was Deckard before him so he's a sort of combination detective assassin kind of bounty hunter who has to try- hunt down Um, bioengineered humans who are known as replicants who have gone rogue, gone off the grid um, and uh, mainly he's after the old and discontinued Nexus 8 models who are still at large Um, so he meets one who's played by Dave Bautista on a protein farm and there discovers a buried box of bones which reveals a big secret which drives the rest of the plot now all of that happens in about the first five minutes And that's about all the plot I can tell you. Mm. Um, Because they've asked us to keep even really fundamental facts about this film a secret. Um, Which makes it a little bit difficult to review, I'm not going to lie. But I can tell you about the characters in there. So obviously we've got Ryan Gosling as Kay, who is... um, I think a bit like Deckard in the original um but 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 again not but not quite as hardened and not quite as cynical um he's sort of still kind of trying to find his place in the world. I think he's a, a little bit more optimistic and idealistic than than Deckard was. Um he has a sort of um holographic girlfriend who's called Joy who's played by Anna de Armas and she is like one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my entire life but she's also just this um, I think she kind of contributes to this feeling that you have that he's really optimistic and idealistic because she's obviously taken on his personality she feels like Scarlett Johansson in her like she's been kind of shaped by his needs and preferences I think mm. Um I can also tell you that Robin Wright is his boss, uh, in charge of the Blade Runner division, I guess, and she's uh, she seems like a really good boss. You know, I would I would work for her. She seems awesome. Uh, and there is also Harrison Ford. I, I, I can't say too much about Deckard either. I can tell you he doesn't turn up until quite late in the film. If you're waiting for him, you know, get comfortable. Um, uh, but he's there and we also have of course Jared Leto as Wallace who has kind of taken over the Tyrell mantle he's not head of the Tyrell Corporation he's got his own corporation but he's very much in the same position as Tyrell was in the first film as the designer of the new breed of replicants the ones who can be trusted not to disobey in the way that the old did um, and he's a he's a mysterious and, and rather unknowable figure I suppose yeah. Mm. I mean, it's very hard to talk about a film where something five minutes in is a spoiler.
1: Yeah. It's very pretty though, right?
0: Oh my God, it's gorgeous. Yeah. So here's the good news. Roger Deakins is obviously cinematographer, DOP for this one, and he is a 13-time Oscar nominee mm. and has yet to win. He's not the most Oscar nominated in history not to have won, but he's, you know, he's getting up there in terms of nominations. I think the most without winning is now twenty. Um, who's one of the sound mixers? Um, he doesn't mind. I should I should make clear, like we're all gagging for Roger Deakins to win an Oscar. Everyone in the industry wants him to win an Oscar. He doesn't care. I don't think he seems to have nothing but respect for all his all his fellows. Um, but I do think that this could be it. I think this could be his year. I mean, Lubeski, uh, Chiva Lubeski has essentially taken a year off. I think, um, and. The biggest competitor I've seen so far is probably Hoyt van Hoytma for Dunkirk. Mm. And I feel like this is more obviously impressive. I think Dunkirk is a great, great job, don't get me wrong, but it, you know, a lot of it is kind of daylight or looks like daylight or could be mistaken for daylight, whereas this one is clearly cinematography at its finest. Mm. Um, and he's done a stunning job, just the layers in some of those scenes, the sort of the mist, the fog the dust in the air, the neon, all of these kind of Blade Runner shades and tones that you expect are there. Denis Villeneuve as well deserves a lot of credit for like really leaning into the bits of Blade Runner that people didn't like first time around. You know, This is mm-hmm. a, a very slow, meditative, um, philosophical film that I don't think... Is obviously commercially successful on its own. I think the Blade Runner name will will help it get there. Um, but it, he takes risks that would not be allowed, I think, for a lesser filmmaker. And I think for the most part they succeed. I've got I've got some quibbles that I won't get into today. But he's it's it's a it's a very good job on his part, as you would expect, because he really you know he's been pretty reliable so far. So yeah, I mean you know stunning work all across the board, no question. Um, and as I say, Empire give it five stars.
1: Five stars. I think you'd call that a recommendation.
0: I think that is what we would call a recommendation indeed, yeah. What else have you said you've seen on the road this week, haven't you? Which is the new Michael Winterbottom film.
1: Yes, that's right. Now this is not to be confused with the Jack Kerouac novel, because it has nothing to do with it and it is maybe could have done with a more original title, perhaps, because it's 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 a very literal description of of what happened. So Basically, in, in a nutshell, On the Road is uh, a rock documentary. It's a rock gig following the band Wolf Alice, a very good band. But it, in in a very sort of experimental touch that Michael Winterbottom likes to do, it's got a f- sort of semi-fictionalised elements added into it, which is a really oh. interesting conceit. So there are genuine uh, documentary elements where they will literally film the band performing as they tour around the country, um, living in a bus, basically, um, and the crew living amongst them in this, you know, in this incredibly claustrophobic atmosphere. Um, but into this mix, um, Michael Winterbottom has thrown in two fictional characters, two actors who play, you know, fictionalised people. And essentially, as as you would have heard from my interview with Michael Winterbottom last week or a couple of weeks ago, they, they strike up a sort of romantic relationship. Um, and and it's the the idea, I suppose, is to create some sort of more authentic portrait of life on the road, of of life as a touring musician or as a touring artist or as a touring crew member, uh, in in that the sense that you know it's not just about being on stage. That's that's being on stage is an hour of your day, and the other twenty three hours of the day are spent, you know, just living, I guess. And you know, Michael Winterbottom's a director who's always been interested in that sort of very authentic uh, portrait of life. He mm. wants to capture realism. Um, in a you know very sort of brutal, honest verite sense, and it's really interesting. You know, it's it's an experiment that I think as you start watching it, you it takes a little while to get used to. There there are points where you try and figure out which parts are real and which parts are scripted, but it it sort of works. It sort of flows in. I mean, the characters, the fictional characters, are literally doing the jobs. So Estelle, played by uh, Lee Harvey. Um, who who plays a sort of uh, management PA, I suppose, and she, she just works for the band. Uh, and you just see her, like, collecting towels occasionally and just asking people for help and hanging out with the bands. Uh, and it feels like genuine hangouts, like they're just sort of sitting in a changing room jamming. Um, and it's really hard to know what is staged and what is just literally these people, um, you know... Hanging out like young people do, and and it's really it, there's something really intoxicating about watching that. And also, it, if you're a Wolf Alice fan, then it does work as a straightforward uh, rock documentary. You know, they they do show them playing music, and it's very nice to hear that music. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting um, idea. It's a con- it's a concept that works really well. The um, the the fusion of reality and fiction, I think, is is just a it's just something quite. You know, new and original. The, the thing with with a lot of Michael Winterbottom films is he do, he doesn't like to have a traditional narrative. So there's not a three act structure. There's not an arc which ends on a sort of satisfactory note. You know, nothing really happens. They just go on tour and then they and then it stops. Um, so if you're looking for a big dramatic film, then this is not the film for you. But um, it, it 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 is a fascinating and sort of genuinely pleasurable couple of hours to, to spend in the company of this band uh, and the characters that are thrown into it so uh, I really liked it Empire really liked it we gave it four stars
0: well that which is a recommendation which
1: is indeed a recommendation
0: wow what a what a streak can we keep this up for our third film the night is short walk on girl well what do you think
1: I certainly hope so
0: no, oh. I'm so sorry uh, So this is a Japanese animation um, Directed by Masaki Yuasa um, it's, it's really weird If you liked uh, the Simpsons episode Where uh, Homer at the ghost chili Do you remember <laughs> El Viaje Mysterioso Mister- yeah, de Nuestro Señor Homer? Nuestro <laughs> Homer um, This is kind of like that But feature length <laughs> um, so it, it, it's super weird. So this this girl with the black hair um, just kind of goes through life and has adventures. And there's a guy called Senpai, who's a shy student with a massive crush on her, who sort of follows her along and gets himself in all sorts of scrapes along the way. Um and there are these, you know, she she gets involved in drinking contests with weird guys who live on trains. Um, she meets perverts, she, gods, um, the god of the used book fair, which I think is a deity we all worship. Um, she gets tied up in student drama, God bless her. Uh, there's a plague and she has to go around town, like, you know, bringing people soup. And and yes, there's like insanely spicy food that causes explosions. So it's, it's super weird. And I have to say for like the first half I wanted to die. Like I just, I hated it. I was so, I was like, why are, why are these things happening, and how can I stop them? Um, it almost kind of won me over just from sheer kind of exhaustion, but I still, I couldn't, I couldn't quite give it a three. I mean, for sheer audacity, it's like a seventeen, <laughs> but for you know coherent sense, it's like a minus fifteen. So I went for two stars. <laughs> I feel like that's how that's, it works.
1: That's very mathematically precise <laughs> reviewing there, Helen.
0: Um, but it is, I mean it's you know, if you're into weird, super trippy animation, this is absolutely the film for you this week. Closely mm. followed by Blade Runner. <laughs> oh. I'm kidding. I, I have nothing but nothing but respect, mostly. Um so yeah, so those are I think the big films this week. Also at this week is The Glass Castle, which we gave three stars. Uh, The Mountain Between Us that's the Kate Winslet and Idris Elba film which also got three stars so you know make up your mind but let's be honest you're all going to go and see Blade Runner 2049 so it doesn't really matter what we say now does it? Exactly. So um, I think that's about it for this week's podcast it's weird just having two people it's like it's, it's like a conversation without weird people I don't, I don't understand how this works. There's been
1: remarkably few impressions this week, hasn't there?
0: I know. Can, can you do any impressions?
1: Uh, oh, hello, it's a little bear. It's my impression of Chris doing an impression of Jim Broadbent. <laughs> um
0: wow that's that's going to have the re- are
1: we scraping the barrel yet I feel like that's the barrel
0: yeah I think we're through we're, the barrel we're and through the barrel we're wearing it now as a pair of trousers yeah. which is use- useful given the lack of trousers <laughs> generally in the podcast and that's it for this week's Empire podcast brought to you by the ferryman at the Gilgud Theatre as I said get down there every day at 10.30 they have front row seats for £12 that is a bargain for a Sam is directed Jazz Butterworth written play otherwise you can join us next week for more film related fun when we will be joined by the lovely Rebecca Ferguson. And with that, it's goodbye from John. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. I'm off to finish writing these supernatural Hamilton lyrics. Mm. Aw, yeah.